Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. For the first time in President Obama's presidency, Congress has overridden a veto. In the wake of this action, we're thinking about whether our representatives should act as trustees or delegates. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So welcome to another episode of Pantsu Politics. We're asking for block submissions. If you guys have something just weighing heavily on your mind, Please uh, send them along to Dante at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. And be sure to check out our blog post there. Uh, We've had some great submissions and hope to continue to do so. So we have a lot to cover in the pearls today. Um, what the first thing we're going to talk about is really breaking news at the time that we're recording. Colombian voters have rejected the peace deal that would end their civil war with FARC that we talked about in a previous episode. And Sarah, I know that you're on vacation. Have you seen any of the coverage of this? I have not. 
So this was a real shock to the country. Um, as you know, the the president of Colombia and FARC's leader signed uh, a peace deal after four years of negotiations. That agreement had to be ratified by Colombians in order to come into force. And 50.24% of Colombians voted against it. So less than 63,000 votes out of 13 million ballots made the difference here. The thinking, at least right now, is that a number of Colombians were angry that FARC rebels would not be imprisoned following this deal because they've been responsible for so much violence in Colombia. But this is a really, really shocking development. And the Colombian president has said that there is not a plan B. So it's unclear what happens from here. I think this is going to contribute to some of our conversation between um, the importance of representatives versus delegates in relationship to sort of majority decision making. I don't understand why they were voting on it to begin with. Yeah, I don't know the the intricacies of Colombian law. I just know that it had to be ratified by the public. And I think this has a little bit of Brexit overtones, right? You have an angry populace. And a lot of a trust gap, I think, between leadership and the people voting and and maybe not a lot of concern about what the outcome of that vote looks like. Well, I have been reading Ron Chernoff's Alexander Hamilton biography, and this is not a new problem. Uh, there was a lot of concern when um, with how to treat British sympathizers or Tories, I think that's the name, when they came back from the Revolutionary War and the idea that, you know, an angry populace was was something that the Founding Fathers dealt with constantly and considered a lot in the formation of our system. And so I just hate, though, that this is going to prevent something that was such a positive piece of international news, especially considering what we're going to talk about next. So things are not going well in Syria. As we discussed on a previous episode, Russia had worked with the United States to negotiate a ceasefire, but that ceasefire was violated about a week later. And since then, Russia and the Syrian government have been just pummeling rebels with airstrikes. But it's not just rebels. I mean, this continues to happen to civilians in Aleppo. And the United Nations is saying that the food supply there is nearly exhausted. There are 600 wounded civilians in the city. And, And it just continues to be an unbelievable crisis. Meanwhile, Russia is really ramping up It's sort of anti-American rhetoric. Apparently, one of the State Department spokespeople, John Kirby, suggested that Russia continuing to work with the Assad regime would lead to terrorist attacks on Russian targets and cause Russian soldiers to return home in body bags. And Russia did not take that well. (laughs) I can imagine. And has said, you know, that it's an, an indication that... The U.S. is is really controlling some of the civil war in Syria. Th- this is bad. This is just bad, bad news. And I hate to talk about this without offering some suggestion or perspective, I guess. And the only thing 
that it really occurs to me to do is make a change in negotiating personnel. And that's no criticism of John Kerry. This is a hopelessly complex problem. But it seems to me that since we are running up against a wall over and over and over again, we need a new voice at the table. And that's not a call, to be clear, that's not a call for him to resign or anything like that. Again, it's no criticism. I just think we need to change up our tactics because, you know, we're not we're not getting anywhere with Russia. That's for sure. Speaking of not getting anywhere, would you like to give us an update on the <laughs> presidential campaign? Not particularly. Um, I mean, I, think I feel like just... it's what's funny is I feel like we need like a new um, debate analysis just because SNL put out their debate. <laughs> it's like a whole other thing to talk about. You know, it's been a really depressing week and it's almost I'm struggling to talk about it because I feel like it's getting just just tiresome. What else is there to say? You know, surprise, Donald Trump said some hopelessly offensive things and then got defensive about being offensive and had another tweet storm. I mean, it's just kind of like, what's well, I do think at this that point? We did have the, you know, October surprise coming right on October 1st. The New York Times was anonymously sent three pages of Donald Trump's, I believe, 1994-1995 tax returns. They were able to um, independently... Uh, confirm that that's what they were and it shows that he declared a 958 is that number right million dollars so almost a billion dollar in losses which would have allowed him to not pay federal taxes for up to 20 years by um using those losses in the legally it's not illegal but um you don't see this as moving the needle at any i sort of do I read a really good thing on surprise, surprise box where they said he's not he's not arguing against this or putting out any evidence that it's not true, which means that the truth, the one safe assumption is that the truth is worse. And that's why he's not trying in any way to basically say, no, this is not true. Let me show you. Which is a really interesting sort of analysis of their the Trump campaign's reaction to this news. I just. I'm not sure what we've learned that we didn't all already suspect. And I think that for the people who already despise Donald Trump, this gives them even more ammunition and it's become a little bit of a sport, right? To just talk about all the ways that he is unqualified or dangerous. I don't know. You name it. I still think you've got people. I know this is crazy to us and to Pantsy Politics listeners. But there are people that were are that really just don't pay that close of attention until October, right before the election, and who, you know, have a loose identity sort of understanding of Donald Trump's identity and Hillary Clinton's identity, but who maybe were buying the narrative of he's this really great businessman and he can turn around the American you know, governmental system in the way that he has been so successful as a businessman. I don't know how you spend a billion dollar loss into being a successful businessman. So I do think that hit hurts one of his, you know, top point narratives that, you know, and I'm talking macro narratives that really hit these undecided, not paying attention, not because they're dumb or whatever, just because some people, you know, don't pay attention to the last minute. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But I, I do think that there's a way, you know, 
New York Times, it was anecdotal. It was just a few people who were like, I want to vote Republican. I want to like him, but I can't in the face of all this stuff. And I think that this is just one more brick in the the wall of that he can't get over. So with the caveat that I don't ever want to be defending Donald Trump in any way as a business person or a politician, I'll say that I don't find it to be as obvious as some do that you can't have this kind of loss and be a successful business person. Because one, a lot of really successful people who deal in billion dollar figures have had billion dollar losses, right? You can you can take big risks and have big losses and recover from it. And, and that shows some resilience and some chutzpah. So I don't think it's that evident. The other thing is, and I'm not a CPA, so I don't want to go into weeds that I can't walk through. But a lot of how you report this stuff, I mean, there are a lot of ways to get here. And I know that the reaction to that statement from people who are firmly with Hillary Clinton will be, well, if he manipulated it, it's even worse because he's not paying his fair share. And that's fine. You just have to remember that a, a a huge portion of the American electorate shares a desire not to pay taxes. And and to at least minimize their taxes to the extent possible. And while they might not like a tax code that gives Donald Trump an opportunity to pay zero in taxes when they're still paying four, five, six figures for two decades. Right. I mean, I still think that they I think this gets back to something that you say a lot, Sarah, which is don't hate the player, hate the game. And I think there are people who will see this as like, yeah, this is what I thought of him. There's not one dollar that he won't chase. He works the system. At least he's owned that from the beginning. He's told us since he started running, I've manipulated the system. And so I know how to fix it because I've manipulated it. I mean, it's kind of interesting how he's made himself um, not bulletproof, but ready for things like this. But I think that the reason he's not You know, he's not releasing his tax returns and saying, see, look, I turned this billion dollar loss into 50 billion dollars because I don't think he did. And I think one of her strongest narratives from the debate is, yeah, he took these he took these losses on the backs of small businesses and creditors. You know, he made money off stiffing people, basically, Um, which I think is, you know, has shown to be pretty true of him so i don't know i don't know how much stomach is particularly undivided undecided voters particularly women voters have for somebody who makes money off owing not paying his debts and then also doesn't pay his taxes i don't know i think that there's a problem there i think those are really different things though i think his treatment of creditors you know suppliers vendors is really really different than i mean we look at the irs as an adversary regular people in the united states see the IRS as like a symbol of everything that's wrong with our government. And I mean, I don't, I'm a regular American. I don't think everybody feels like that. Not, I didn't say everybody, but a huge, a huge percentage of people feel that way. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a cultural joke, right? I mean, auditors are punchlines in a lot of our sitcoms and things. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of where we are because our tax code is so complex. And I think that's a lot of, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend him at all. (laughs) I just, I don't see this as the nail in the coffin that some would have it be viewed as. Well, there's so many nails to choose from at this point. 
So why don't we say something nice (laughs) before we move on? Because goodness knows our country needs compliments right now. So do you want to start with your compliment for the other party? So I decided I don't always have to compliment elected officials. I had a very nice conversation with two family members who are Republicans about the presidential race. And um, if not their complete agreement with Hillary Clinton, their respect for her and their disdain for Donald Trump's tactics. And so, I mean, I'm not going to compliment them by name, but two family members, you know who you are. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. I'm going to say something that I thought would never, ever come out of my mouth. My compliment this week is for Harry Reid, <laughs> because Harry Reid is the single United States senator who did not vote to override President Obama's veto. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the suit. 
So the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, we talked about, or I mentioned in complimenting President Obama last week for his veto. This bill allows the families of 9-11 victims to sue the government of Saudi Arabia for any culpability the government might have had in the terrorist attacks. And international lawyers pretty unanimously think this bill is a terrible idea. Notwithstanding that fact, our Congress, on a bipartisan basis, uh, passed this bill and President Obama vetoed it. And for the first time in his presidency, the veto was overridden. Ninety-seven senators voted to override the veto. There were two people absent. And then Harry Reid, as I mentioned, was the lone vote against that veto override. The House also overwhelmingly and on a bipartisan basis voted to override the veto. And our listener Aaron asked on Twitter sort of what the consequences of this act are. So this runs up against a really well-established principle called sovereign immunity. We generally do not allow private U.S. citizens to use the United States court system to sue foreign governments for a host of reasons. Uh, The chief reason is because no country in the world has affairs and operations going on um, like the United States, right? We have people doing things all over the world, and if citizens of countries where we're off doing things could drag the United States into court every time they didn't like something those citizens did, that's where all of our energy would go. And that is the concern that opponents of this bill have and that the White House has expressed. Notwithstanding that, Congress... uh, Congress just let this sail through and then started expressing some remorse immediately. Mitch McConnell blamed President Obama for not being more communicative with Congress about the consequences of this, which I think is about the most cynical and disgusting statement he could have made. Dianne Feinstein, who I usually have so much confidence in, made the comment on the record that, like, we just didn't pay much attention to this and that was a mistake. I I think this is a good microcosm of everything that's not working in Washington today. Yeah, I don't really I, look, look like if you're a congressperson and you have these teeny tiny approval ratings and politicians are thought of as craving people who, you know, pander, then you override this veto and then claim that the president didn't communicate with you. And I just, they're trying to, they're trying to get both. Let's just be honest. They want both things. They want to be like, oh, well, we didn't know there were bad foreign policy implications. Well, you're a freaking senator. Most of you have law degrees. Like, give me a break. I understand that this would not be an easy thing to look in the victim's eyes and their families and say, I cannot vote for this in good conscience when these people desperately want justice for their lost loved ones. Like, no one is dismissing how difficult that would be but damn do your job and they just didn't and i think that that is a an excellent kind of intro to talk about what is the job so at the top of the podcast we said we were going to talk about whether our representatives should act as trustees or as delegates and the difference is in a trustee model which our system really is right now and if you look at 
thinkers like John Stuart Mills and uh, Burke, you'll see a lot of support for the trustee model. So that idea is we elect our representatives. We want them to listen to us, uh, but also exercise independent judgment in their actions. In a delegate model, it's I have a representative who listens and I say, here's what I want you to do. And the delegate goes and does it. Right. So that's why we call delegates to our conventions delegates. Right. Because they they are usually bound to what the populace has expressed. And so Sarah um, has been thinking about this a lot and thought it might be interesting to talk about what we really want from our representatives and whether we're acting like that's what we really want. Well, we're schizophrenic about our representatives anyway, because we hate Congress, but we reelect incumbents by massive margins. So we're, let's, let's, let's assume already that we're a little schizophrenic about how we feel about our elected officials. We don't like Congress, but we love our guy or woman. So that could probably be the first problem is we don't really know if we like them or not. <laughs> but, you know, again, I'm reading Chernoff's biography of Hamilton right now. This is something they thought a lot about. And most all the founding fathers subscribed to a very, you know, trusty model. They were all landowners. They were all highly educated. They were all white. Like they thought and they definitely subscribed to the idea that some people were better suited to the task of governing. And while I don't subscribe to the idea, because they definitely wouldn't have thought women were suited for it, that's for sure, especially looking at you, Thomas Jefferson. While I don't think that there are inherent characteristics of certain groups of people that make them better suited to the act of governing, I do subscribe to the trustee model in that I, I, I don't really understand why we would have representatives, you know, otherwise. If it's just we're just going to take a majority vote and we're going to decide assuming we can even decide how the majority feels because i don't think that's always the easiest task it's just just, well what do we what what do the quote-unquote people really want and that's not always the right thing to do i mean if if that was the case why don't we just govern by referendum they try they try that in california and a lot of times don't work out so great so i think that governing is a complicated task that must be approached with um complexity and nuance and thoughtfulness and I think that that sometimes with a fuller picture as a representative you should make decisions that maybe your constituents won't absolutely love but I think that where our representatives often fail is there's just they're sort of terrible at communicating or they're sort of terrible you know I'm reading this biography and they were like pinning you know the Federalist Papers and these screeds and like sort of always making their case to the people, you know, like I think that it's got to be a conversation. It can't just be like, well, I've decided this is the right thing to do. Like it needs to be, okay, tell me what you think. This is what I think. Let's have a conversation about this. I'm not promising you what I'll do, but I'll definitely listen and think through, you know, your, your concerns and other people's concerns. And I think that's what's so often lacking in our current system. And that's why people feel frustrated. But I don't think the answer is just you know, be automatons and do exactly what the people are polling as wanting you to do. I think that's how you end up in messes like Columbia and with this uh, 9-11 bill. Well, I think that the issue is not that we should bind people to the will of the populace for a whole lot of reasons. I think the problem with our current trustee model is, is what you said in terms of communication, plus representatives being confused about for what or for whom they are trustees. 
because I think that in many ways our representatives now and and look, we are all accountable for this. So this isn't they're bad people. This is the system that we've created. But because we as voters don't pay careful attention to every issue, because we are so easily swayed by advertising and particularly negative advertising, I mean, that's what this whole 9-11 issue comes down to, right? Nobody wants an ad run against them to say they voted against a law that would help 9-11 families. And that's a direct statement on the attention of the voting populace. And because of that, I think our representatives now feel like they are acting as fiduciaries of the parties or of the special interest groups that help them get elected or of their primary donors. And in my mind, we can we can attack all of those problems separately, and maybe we should, but the biggest issue is if we want our representatives to be accountable to us as voters, we have to pay enough attention to exercise that accountability meaningfully, and that doesn't just mean sending people home. It means supporting them when they step up and do hard things. You know, I think that a reason that President Obama was so easily able to exercise the veto on this one and to speak so forcefully through his White House staff on it is because he's not running for reelection. Now, I think he Neither would do the right Harry thing Reed. on this anyway. Yeah, Harry Reid as well. I mean, that's a powerful statement about where we are. The fact that 97 people, I just can't get over the the numbers here. Nothing in in Washington, D.C. gets that kind of bipartisan support. Yeah, seriously. This feels like this just makes me feel so cynical about what motivates our representatives and and about what they think of us as voters. Well, and I think, too, it's not just, you know, we need to have a conversation that when you send somebody to Congress. I don't know. Do I do I really think that, you know, I get upset because I don't really think Mitch McConnell represents Kentucky or cares that much about Kentucky. But I also do want um, a representative that sees as a trustee, that they're not just the trustee of my congressional district or my state, but that they are a member of the United States Congress. And they are a part of the body and that they represent the interests of the entire country. Do I want them to forcefully represent, you know, my state's interest and my district's interest? Yeah, but come on, like, I've lived in like six states and I'm 35. So I don't think it, you know, and, and particularly in this day and age, like it doesn't need to be this you know, all or nothing situation. We all move around a lot. We all have um, have had identities in different states, or at least a lot of Americans have. And I think what's really interesting about this is that I just keep thinking about what I talked about, the study they talked about um, on the weeds that, you know, state legislators are just elected or defeated based on the popularity of the of the president and whether they're a member of that party or not. It's like, we've just abdicated all political awareness. Like the only thing people pay attention to and the only thing people are invested in is the president. And so you have the president in this very powerful and often, you know, and definitely a trustee position, but it makes, you know, all of the United States Congress sort of the worst sort of, purely delegate model because all they're representing is the the narrow financial or the the narrow um political interest of whoever their special interest or perhaps you know gerrymandered district is and so you just have this really broken system in which the president's the only one looking out for 
in theory, looking out for the good of the whole. And there's no way that he's ever going to ple- he or she is ever going to please everybody. So you're always going to have somebody pissed off and feeling like he didn't, you know, sort of perform his delegate duty. I don't know. Well, it erodes our constitutional separation of powers, too. The Washington Post has a really good piece about this that says, look, throughout the past several administrations, and this is not a partisan issue, except for several administrations, all of our foreign policy power has been more and more consolidated in the executive branch in a way that Mm -hmm. is not good for the country. But the problem is every time Congress has the opportunity to do its job on foreign policy, it does a terrible job. And this is an an outstanding example of how I'm not sure that we can trust Congress at this point Mm -hmm. to do what it's supposed to do on foreign policy. I mean, that's that's a really bad place to be. And I feel like it's because they're, like, performing too much of this delegate model. All I care about is the the narrow interest of whoever is lobbying me or whoever is, um, particularly if you have harshly gerrymandered districts and, you know, extreme ideological positions, and you have people just, you know, willing to shut down the government, willing to take down their own party, based only on the the narrow views of some people who elect them. Like, that is problematic. And you see it in the Tea Party. You see it in Occupy Wall Street. You heard some of that in sort of the Sanders supporters. You certainly hear it from the Donald Trump supporters. I think the party platforms are an indicator of that delegate model thinking. There was an interesting piece that I read from 2012, and I think it was Huffington Post, I'll put it in the show notes, about the Romney-Obama election in 2012, and how, in some ways, the reaction to Mitt Romney and and all of this sort of flip-flopping allegation shows that voters really do want a trustee, but we've taught our politicians to run as delegates. So here you have Mitt Romney, like, twisting himself into pretzels to suit first what primary voters want, then what general election voters want. And President Obama, by contrast being much more of a trustee from the beginning. That's his whole mm-hmm. professorial thing, right? Like, yeah, and he's, he's a good at it. person and he's good at it. And his shortcoming, and I think that this is illustrated by this whole JASTA situation as well, his shortcoming is that he is a great fiduciary and thinks like a great fiduciary and he has trouble bringing people along with him for that. And that's if you're if you're asking the executive branch to shoulder the entire burden of thinking like a fiduciary yeah. for the country, plus corralling 535 people who apparently can't be bothered to read the crap that they write. That's an unsustainable situation. Well, and I think, you know, I think that Barack Obama is good at this and Bill Clinton w- was really good and still is very good at this. They're good at that communication part. They're good at being like, okay, y'all, let's have a conversation. And you feel like you're engaged. I know not everybody feels like Barack Obama listens to them. Like, like I'm not stupid, but I do think that they have a way in Bill Clinton in particular of sort of feeling like, well, we're all in this together. And this is just sort of what I think the best decision is. Um, I I think Barack Obama can do that in a big room and not in a small room. And that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Bill Clinton could do it in a small room. He told this story on the Hillary Clinton podcast about how, 
NASA loaned him a moon rock that was 3.6 billion years old. And so he put it on the end table between the two couches in the Oval Office. And when people would get in and start disagreeing and like sort of double down on their positions, he'd be like, now listen, y'all, that rock right there on that table is 3.6 billion years old. Our entire human race has not been here very long, and you and I aren't going to be here for very long at all. So we only have a short period of time. Let's see where we can agree. Like, I just thought, like, oh, that is so, I can see you, like, that's so perfect. I love that so much. And so, you know, I think you're right, though. That has to be both of them. But I think that arguably, you know, I don't, I, I feel like Congress was even different, obviously different before the contract for America and definitely different after, and that they were more willing to do that. I mean, I think you have members of Congress who just have positions that's the, they're not invested in the country. They're invested in their positions. And that is problematic. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. It is, and I'm not sure how you really fix this. I mean, I have to be honest that this situation, this veto override, gives me perhaps more long-term concern for our country than even the presidential race does, because it speaks to the depth of dysfunction that we have going on in Washington, D.C. And I don't like to be that person who just wants to light it all on fire, and I don't think that's quite the answer. But man, I mean, this this really concerns me. Well, I was thinking of... Go ahead. Well, the only thing, the only point that I haven't made about the delegate model that I think is worth mentioning, because a lot of us, to get our heads around it, need something, you know, a little bit closer to home. So if you've ever been an officer in any kind of private organization, whether that's like the PTA or a business or, you know, a nonprofit, whatever. When you have like this balance of the officers are doing the day-to-day work, but then you've got maybe a board of directors or shareholders who come in once a month or, you know, every other week and sort of question what you've been doing as an officer and want to change courses in some places. And as an officer, you want to pull your hair out because this person, you can't know when you look at it once a month, what you know when you look at it all day, every day. I think that is why we want to treat our representatives as trustees, because as you said, Sarah, like governing is complex. Then the sheer mass of subjects these people have to absorb is more than we can pay attention to every day. I think most of us struggle to just keep up with this at the headlines level. So we do need to be able to trust our representatives to come back to us and explain, like, I know that this is what you think the right answer should be. I know you think we should do anything for 9-11 victims. Here's how this particular law would endanger our service members overseas today, right? Here are the unintended consequences. And And maybe that's the answer, Sarah, the communication point that we just have to get better at showing people why the folks who are in this every day do know more than those of us who aren't. I mean, look, I believe in the communication angle for sure. That's definitely one of my kind of platforms as I'm running for Paducah City Commission. But I will say that I think it was Melissa who'd made this really great point of we create politicians to see them fail. Like, do we really give politicians an opportunity to engage like that especially at the national level i'm not sure we do you know like we paint them we paint them as caricatures and and you know especially i feel like hillary clinton gets this criticism a lot like well she's a caricature to most people they're not going to let her engage like that on that level you know so i think that that is um it is to have that communication you have to have a certain amount of trust and i think to your earlier point there is in something we bring up a lot in this podcast something we talked a lot about at vox conversations and i was just listening to uh, i finished chillbilly elegy by jd vance and it was really excellent and he talks about sort of the loss um of trust in our institutions 
And he made a really good, interesting point about sort of the modern conservative movement and that he feels like the the problem is that um, the te- it tells people to blame the government for their problems when he feels like there's a lack of personal responsibility, which I thought was really interesting. But it really got me engaged on, the, and that's something I've been thinking about anyway, which is this loss of trust. And I think that, look, we are not going to call a constitutional convention, not to go back to my earlier in, incessant Hamilton references, but like we're not going to go back to the drawing board and create a new system unless it comes after great upheaval or even worse violence. So I don't want that. I think that what we have to do is decide that we are. I mean, I don't know if the other solution is we are just going to have to trust We're going to have to trust our media more than we have, more than they deserve. We're going to trust Congress more than we have, more than we deserve. Because I don't want to tear down the system and build a new one to gain trust. I'm not up for that little level of social upheaval. And I don't really think most Americans are either. So, you know, I I don't know if with regards to sort of the dysfunction of Congress, we just have to say like, okay, look, we're going to stop assuming that you are the worst people on the planet and that everything is broken and we're just going to have to start trying to trust trust something that said is fact on the news trust you know like the the these two institutions that are entrusted with our entire government and society like we're going to have to start trying to trust them because i don't really know what other options we have i didn't expect to get here but this ties into an article that I posted on Twitter and Facebook this week from Ross Stu that um, that talks about the, in his opinion, harmful effect our comedy is having on politics because shows like John Oliver, The Daily Show, Samantha Bee really make politics into sport. And it's it's the only place a lot of people get their news and I don't agree with everything that he said, but I do find it really thought provoking. And as you're talking about this, you know, comedy is so accessible. It's so much fun. I'm even thinking about like, I can't wait to watch SNL, which I'm going to do as soon as we stop talking. Um, But it is a really cynical way to look at our politics. And it is a way that has made us all kind of collectively as a social bonding exercise hate our representatives. And I think we've got to ask ourselves some questions about that. Now, that is not to say, like, Samantha B is the cause of our Congress, right? We can't take things to that kind of logical extreme. But I do think, how can we still still poke fun at ourselves, still enjoy these programs, which I, I do, I love them, but keep some perspective and keep that element of trust and some grace for our Congress people? I mean, that's that's kind of an interesting question. Well, I think there's a couple things here. One, I did not agree with that article. I do not think that it's turned um, sort of news into sport. I think the bigger problem, well, and also I really don't believe that, um, I really find particularly John Oliver show and Samantha Bee to be a very different animal than The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Malcolm Gladwell did an amazing podcast on the power of satire, and it has to be done in a very... Um, distinctive way in order to really educate people and to and to learn something like I have li- this literally happened the other day. So my when Hillary Clinton went on 
between two ferns, Zach Galifianakis, like, funny or die, ha-ha, um, sort of public access takeoff. And, every, you know, every liberal I knew was like, oh, my God, she did such a good job. She killed it. She was straight-faced. And then my brother was like, oh, did you see him making fun of her? He was making such fun of her. And that was sort of Malcolm Gladwell's point is everybody sees what they want. Like, anybody watching Saturday Night Live version of the debate is going to see if they're a trump supporter they're going to see the ridiculous hillary jokes and if i'm i'm going to see the trump jokes and we're both going to take away what we want that's not good satire good satire leaves you uncomfortable and exposes a truth that maybe nobody wants to see and so i think that's probably a bigger problem with that comedy is like that because this was malcolm gladwell's premise was all about stephen colbert that everybody watched it and everybody saw what they wanted to see I think that particularly John Oliver is sort of a different animal. I watched John Oliver's show, and I, it like, I used to watch The Daily Show, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, tell him, John Stewart. You know, like, you're so exposing the truth here. Like, you're making such a good point. I don't really feel that when I watch John Oliver. When I watch John Oliver, I'm like, shit, I had no idea charter schools had these problems. Like, I think he does a really good job of sort of deep diving in a way The Daily Show didn't, and not really just for jokes, just for sort of like a, oh, my God, did you know this kind of situation, which I think is different and valuable. Um, but I think that there is an interesting analysis to be had about whether this, you know, I I don't know. I think it's a chicken and egg. Did they perpetuate the distrust or what was, what was already building that distrust? They just noticed and started making fun of, you know what I mean? I kind of think it was the second. I I think they, I I totally think it's the second. Yeah. I think they noticed the things the media were doing that was ridiculous that we all were like, Oh, I can't trust you guys. I don't believe you, but I don't feel that way either. Like, no, I don't watch cable news ever. And maybe I would feel differently if I did. But I don't distrust the New York Times when I read them. I don't distrust, obviously, we all know how I feel about Vox. Like, I just, I think that they're, I read the news, I read news article, and it's really stressful for me to engage with people who are like, oh, but they can just make it up. But people really do feel like that, and it blows my mind. Like, somebody the other day was like, well, it depends on who your fact checker is. No, it's a freaking fact checker. That's what the word fact means. Like, but people, like, there is a huge majority of people out there who just do not believe anything that comes from the media. And I, unless it's like, you know, from Alex, whatever his name is, who's insane on a whole new level. But I don't know. I don't know um, what to do about that until we all decide like, okay, well, if, you know, if the New York Times publishes it, they're not perfect. And of course, everybody that works there has a perspective. But like, dang, we have to decide at some point that certain things are fact. And I think that is a bigger problem than sort of the Samantha B problem. Well, it's it clearly is. I think it's just it's important to examine all of our roles in how we got here and all of the filters that perpetuate how we got here. Because I find myself even being really, really cynical about Congress. I thought that I had gotten better at that through our podcast <laughs> until this veto override. And now I'm just sort of wondering what we're doing here. But... We will move on to something um, a little bit less controversial and hear about Sarah's vacation in the heels today. All right, so Sarah, we can apologize to our listeners for sound quality. Um, much like when I was at the beach, Sarah is podcasting on her vacation, and so we're, we're doing our best. How's it going so far? I mean, we just got here today, so hopefully it'll get better since I spent seven hours in the car today and five hours yesterday. Um, 
but we are in Orlando. Nobody likes my hashtag. I have a vacation hashtag, which is Horlando, <laughs> like a Holland in Orlando, and nobody likes it. Everything sounds like W-H-O-R Orlando, but whatever, people. If you can think of, here, I will send out a call to Fancy Paul politics listeners if you can think of a better hashtag for the holland family vacation in orlando disney and harry potter world please let me know but anyway um are you a disney person beth no Mm -mm. i'm I'm guessing that doesn't surprise you i know and i just it makes me sad i was totally not a disney person i was so skeptical when my friends like and let me just say when i say i'm a quote-unquote disney person we are not staying on a disney property we do not have the magic bands we will be going one day to magic kingdom a pool day in between, and then one day to Hollywood Studios. So it's not like I'm, like, here for 10 days and going to a park every day, just to clarify. But I was super skeptical, but our first trip to Disney two years ago when Griffin was in kindergarten was phenomenal. We had so amazing – you know, I used to talk a lot about Disney's quality control until uh, that unfortunate situation with the alligator and the baby, but I still do believe overall in Disney's quality control, and they do a really good job. It's hard to find things, I think, that – especially when you have little kids in which you don't feel like you're either doing something for them, like you're taking them to the zoo or you're dragging them along to something you do. And I think the reason people like Disney is it really like as cheesy as it sounds as a real family experience. Everybody's there. Everybody's together. The sort of logistical stuff of dealing with kids is made really easy by Disney and everybody gets to have a good time. So why I don't spend every vacation here and I don't do the whole thing We really do enjoy it, and I highly recommend it. Well, I hope you guys have a lot of fun. Yeah, we're going to Harry Potter Land. I mean, I know it has, like, an official name, but that's what I call it. Uh, We're going to that tomorrow. Then we'll take a break day, hang out by the pool. Then we'll go to Magic Kingdom, break day, hang out by the pool. And then we'll go to Hollywood Studios for the Jedi training, full Star Wars experience. Then we'll be going home, so. Well, I'm going to try to hold down the fort here. Uh, send me lots of Friday feedback so that we can incorporate that into the briefcase. And I'm going to bring you an interview with someone from the executive director of Republic Ian. They say it Republican, but I'm saying it Republic Ian because that's how it's spelled. And it's a, a think, a thinking group on climate change from the Republican perspective. So they are climate realists and believe in free enterprise solutions to climate change. So I think that should be an interesting conversation. So thants for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter as always. We're on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic without an S. And we hope to see you again later this week. Keep it around still.